Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 12. For me, that's page 1. For you, it might be page 600 or something like that. Uh, 200, and we're not that far yet. Darn. I'm going to move on with the teaching, and we'll compare some page numbers later. Um, Saul has just rallied Israel to defend against the Abanites. Uh, he has been recognized as the king. And this is the, the golden age of Saul the king, uh, but we're going to start going the other direction tonight. Verse 1, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you've said to me, and I've made a king over you. And now, here is the king, walking before you. And I'm old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. And I've walked before you from my childhood to this day, and here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox I have taken or whose donkey I have taken or whom I have cheated. Whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which you, to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. So Samuel's making his exit from the leadership of Israel. He's handing it off to the king. Uh, it is the smoothest transition of government in the history of the world. Like this is how it should happen. Like, but because they're not just going from Saul, Samuel to Saul, they're going from a theocracy to a monarchy. So they're actually shifting forms of government when they do this. He says, here's the king, and I'm old and gray-headed, showing a clear contrast between the two and who's their leader now. So a, a very clear handoff. Samuel's not clinging to power. He says, I've heeded your voice. That means from the last chapter, their voice was to ask for a king. He's done that for him. The other thing they asked for um, is they asked, for, they pointed out, remember, that his sons were corrupt. Eli didn't do anything about his sons, but we see in this passage that Samuel did. He says, look, my sons are with you, which means they're not on the podium with Samuel. They, he has demoted them to being a layperson. So they're not priests, and he's kicked them out of the priesthood. 1 Samuel 8.5 is where he says, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint to us a king like all nations. Here he says, Behold, I'm old. My sons aren't with you and you have your king. So he's actually kind of this bookends what happened back in chapter 8. So the, those concerns are addressed. His oldness is pointed out in both cases and they are moving forward. So remember, Samuel, when they made this request in chapter 8, remember he was really upset about it? And he said, um, and God had to say, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. So God had to point out to Samuel that they're not rejecting you. But when we read this first passage in Samuel 12, I think Samuel's just making sure that there's no offense, that he's leaving with a clear conscience. And it's kind of like saying, even though you don't want me to be your leader anymore, I just want to know that we have shalom. We have peace. So then he invites the critique. And I, this is... Really, you don't see this in other ancient writings at all. Um, 
I've walked before you from my childhood, and we've watched him grow up with Hannah making him little ephods, remember? And he's been serving since he was a kid, and he wants to end his service the way he started, with a clear conscience. And I just love that. It's such a model of how we can behave in the kingdom of God. And he says, before you, I've done this before you. That's an agrarian term in the Hebrew. It has to do with a farm culture. When you go before people, it's like when you lead a flock or you lead sheep. Um, you can lead donkeys from behind because that you push them forward with a stick. But a lot of the crop or, or herding animal groups, you lead from the front and they just follow you as their leader because you're the one that gives them food. So when he says, I've been before you since childhood, he's been serving the Lord in front of them so they have a path to follow. And that's Samuel's heart. Here I am, witness against me. I want to leave blamelessly. I don't want to have anything wrong. And I just love this. If you're going to leave office or leave a job, to kind of leave and just say, I just want to make sure we're all on good terms. We're doing that. And then he says, I'll restore it to you. So he invites them to critique on anything he's done wrong. If I've stole from you or done anything that's been wrong, let's make that right and let's get that in front. Um, so the point here isn't for Samuel to argue with people about what he's done right or wrong. The point here is that Samuel wants to make it right. What a blessing. Verse 4. Um, and they said, you've not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And then he said to him, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is, is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is a witness. So he, he invites the criticism and they say, Samuel, you've done nothing wrong. You've been a good leader. What a blessing for him to leave his ministry and know you've never cheated us. Paul does the same thing in the New Testament when he's referring in one of his letters. He just says, hey, I never took a dime from any of you. All I did is brought you the word of God. And Samuel's kind of doing the same thing here. I don't have anything. I want to just make sure we have a clear conscience. I've never stolen or taken anything. I've never been corrupt. I've never hidden money in the bathroom walls. Like we all have a clear conscience about what's going on here. And when he can exit with that kind of clear conscience, what a great way to go into retirement. So, and they said, you've not cheated us. So they give him that confirmation. And then they bring in, the Lord is witness against you. Why is it against, right? What's, what Samuel knows is they're going to quickly fall away from the Lord again. And when that happens, they can't blame Samuel because he's done his job and he's kicked his sons out of the ministry. So he's left them. And I think this is God being a witness against him is that God has done everything for Israel to give them the opportunity to be holy. They've gotten the law, they got Moses, they got Samuel, they've had every opportunity to be holy. And when they fall away, that's going to be the witness against them. Saul can't blame his predecessor. And we often hear politicians blame the predecessor for all the problems they inherited. So when Samuel does this in transition, that takes away that accusation from Saul. And the people are all there to witness this. No, 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 Saul, you were handed... A clean priesthood led by Samuel. You were handed a, uh, the, a priesthood that didn't steal from us or do anything wrong. And the corrupt priests were all gone. So the spiritual failings of Israel are going to be on Israel's shoulders. So this makes two witness when he says the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day. You can read that two ways in the Hebrew because remember tenses are gone in the Hebrew. So when he says this, he's listing two witnesses. And under the law... It takes two witnesses to make something a case. So if the Lord is one witness and his anointed is the second, his anointed in the immediate sense could be read as Saul the new king, right? 
in the future tense, the anointed could also be the Son of God or Jesus being the second witness against Israel. Um, and again, if you get to Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus brings up this idea that the, uh, they have been witnessed against as he breaks from the Jewish priesthood. So verse 6, then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses. So I'm going to read a lot here because there's not a lot of commentary. We're just getting a history lesson from Samuel as they get the history of Israel in one paragraph. Then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I might reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. For, I just want to pause before verse 8. I love the fact that throughout the Bible, God asks us to use our minds. We're called to reason and think throughout the Bible. And that's what Samuel is doing. Let's take a moment and just study what God's done. Verse 8, when Jacob had gone into Egypt and all your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord near their God, he, told them, uh, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord. And they said, we've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. Verse 11. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal. Jerubbaal. Remember that's another name for Gideon? He got a new name because he you know, let, them, let Baal deal with this guy. Badan, who we've never heard of before. Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. That was the last chapter. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So Samuel's laying out a court-like accusation against Israel right here. And he's laying out the facts of their history. God's always been good to you, but you want another king even though he's been a good king. And at the end of the day, you ended up in safety. So that hasn't been good enough for you. Now, therefore, stand still. In verse 7, that idea of just chill and relax and hear what God's got for you. Um, he gets them from Egypt to there. They have a country they didn't have. They have a people they didn't have before. They have an ark. They have the law. They have everything that they didn't have before. Um, and now they're going to walk away. Verse 10, they, they sinned and the Lord responded. Every time they've repented, the Lord has always shown up for them. And that's true for us today too. Every time we, we repent and go to the Lord, he comes and forgives us. They ask for a savior, God gives them a savior. God actually sends a group of people. Um, Jerubbaals in Judges 6. Uh, Badan, people have argued about that. It's maybe a new name for a judge, a local leader in the Gilead area. It might be 1 Chronicles 7, 17. Or the Bible simply doesn't make an attempt to cover every character that God sends to save the people. And that's kind of the one way to interpret this is we don't know everything God does. We only know the pieces that show the history of God's interactions with Israel. So that mention of Badan there becomes an interesting thing. Uh, going from Gideon to Samuel with four names is actually 400 years of Israelite history that he's covering in just a sentence. Um, verse 12, when he men mentions Nahash, um, he's tying history into their current events which is the purpose of history. 
all of this stuff you're asking for is the reaction to Nahash. And remember, Nahash's name in the Hebrew is serpent. So the serpent's causing you to do all this doubting and wanting a new government. So it's not going to go well for them. Israel's history is not bright. Uh, but a king shall reign over us. God's reign is going to be good, but you're going to get a human king. Um, and you're going to get every chance in the world to have a holy kingdom that's ruled by a human king. Starting with Saul, he fails, but then God's going to give him David and Solomon, and they're going to rise in prominence and security and safety. Um, and that's still not going to be good enough. Ultimately, the kingship or the throne of Israel is what Jesus claims when he arrives. So ultimately, it isn't going to be a human king that claims that throne. It's going to be God himself, which was the original plan, is that God would rule over his people. So God's going to continue to bless Israel. He's going to lift them up, even as they're going down a path he doesn't want them to have. Um, I think the idea of salvation is something that's not just history. It's common to all of our lives. Uh, verse 13, we'll keep cranking. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you've desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. Saul didn't put himself there through power or anything like that. He's being appointed by Samuel in these circumstances that look like chance that have put him in this spot. Verse 14, uh, chapter 12, verse 14. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and don't rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. The covenant doesn't change based on the government. The covenant is you need to serve the Lord God Almighty with your whole heart, mind, and soul. That's always been the covenant from the beginning. And basically Samuel is saying, you got a king, but you're going to keep the same covenant. So it's still your job to follow the Lord. That hasn't changed. Verse 15, however, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father. The against here is the same word that was used when he said, God, this is going to testify against you. So this is the case that Samuel is laying out, and he's telling them everything that's going to happen before it happens. Take note, there are two opposite outcomes that Israel can have. They're either going to thrive under God's leadership, or they're going to fall away and they're going to suffer because God's going to take his hands away or actually be against them. So our blessing is to follow, and there is what you would call a dichotomy here. You have two choices, and that dichotomy doesn't change throughout the Bible. Serve the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul, or be against him and be scattered. Uh, it says, as it was against your fathers, the repeating of history is part of what Samuel is pointing here. This has happened before, and it will happen again. You having a king doesn't change this relationship at all. So we get the same promises. And then in verse 16, now therefore... When you see it, therefore, we always ask, what's it there for? And everything is this history that's been added up. Because of this history, stand and see the great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I'm going to call the Lord, I will call the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you've done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord. You might say having a rainstorm is not a big deal, and why in the world would they see? That's not miraculous. 
Um, the reason it's the harvest season, and that gets pointed out in these verses, is that in the Middle East, they, the reason they can harvest is because all the crops are dried out, because the rain is really sparse at that time. So to have a big, healthy rainstorm, they actually did perceive that as a miracle, because that doesn't typically happen at this time of year. It's why they can harvest and thresh wheat. Um, so Samuel says all this, but then God reinforces it with the weather, at Samuel's call, it just starts to happen. So the, the other part is the timing of the storm. It's not just that there was rain. It's that there was rain when Samuel said there would be rain. And it's God's way of saying, I'm going to confirm everything that's happening through power. Jesus was the same way. He did the Sermon on the Mount and then did miracle, 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 miracle. God reinforces the words with acts of power. Um, so when his word goes forth, that tends to happen. And uh, this is definitely the new contract with Israel. Um, so he calls them, they send them. And the relevance of this is that the people of God see it and they greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Part of this miracle is also Israel getting the best chance of success because their belief here, their understanding that God's still their God, that relationship hasn't changed, actually sets them up for success as a nation or the best chance that humans can have. Verse 19 and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we've added to all of our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They actually recognized what was wrong with this and they repent of it. So Samuel calls a sin. He doesn't Mickey Mouse around the bush on that one. He calls it what it is. It's sin. Doesn't back off of it for people's feelings. And then they see what they've done wrong and they repent of it. And all of this is done because Samuel loves them and, they, and he wants them to love the Lord appropriately. Verse 20 comes, Then Samuel said to the people, Don't fear. When people repent, we have nothing to fear from God. It's the hard heart that has something to fear. But in this repentance, Samuel sees that and he can easily say, Don't fear. You have done all of this in wickedness, yet don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things, vain things, which cannot profit or deliver, for they're nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Even today, the nation of Israel is largely perceived as Yahweh's people. So even today, that nation holds that title, and there's that acknowledgement. It's the only Jewish nation on earth. So the reason the Lord sustains them is not their obedience or their works. It's because he said, I'm their God. And he's made himself their God. Verse 18, the kind of fear there is a godly fear. It's not being terrified and hiding in the corner or a fear of the flesh, but it's a fear of what God can do if you're on the other side of God. So verse 20 then says, don't fear. So there is a fear to be had, but verse 20 says, don't fear. Verse 20 and 22 Samuel summarizes all of Judaism and Christianity in such a succinct way. It's just beautiful writing. Verse 19, you've sinned. Verse 20, don't run from God. Instead, repent. And verse 20, serve God. So we don't have anything to fear from God if we repent. And we take that and say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. Help me to serve you with everything I have. Verse 21, don't turn aside. The premise here is that there is something to turn aside from. And the thing that we've been given in the law and in the teachings of Jesus is there is a path to follow in life. Don't turn aside from the path. Don't get off it. 
So when he says don't sort of turn aside, again, we're seeing that there is one way to heaven, one path to get there. It's been laid out and it's clear and God's made it easy even. So if you go after empty things, verse 21, the word in the Hebrew, that empty is the word vanity, formless, confused, and unreality. There is God's way, which is real. There's every other way the world has to offer, which is fake. But it looks so real, and it's must-see TV, but it's fiction. And when God's people stray from the path, the world of fiction grows, and amusement becomes something that's even more appealing than the way that God's laid out for us. And we see that happening everywhere. With the Greeks and Romans, they created pantheons of cartoon character gods that they would sell action figures for. And that was like this entertainment base they would. You'd go into the temple and hear stories about these characters. And these gods were very human-like, but they create fantasies instead of things that are real. Satan loves when we get lost in fantasies. This is what God was against in Genesis 1. Everything was formless or vain or without shape or order, and God came and brought light into that situation. It's what we're called to do too. Which cannot profit or deliver, that's two things. One, empty things don't gain, you don't gain anything from it. In fact, most of the empty things just eat your pocketbook because it costs money to be involved in those things. But the other piece is that they don't deliver. When life gets tough, they're not there to support you or back you up. The Marvel Universe will not come to your rescue. So as much as these fake characters are things we can watch and entertain ourselves with, they don't add or contribute to our life. And I'm picking on Marvel because everybody gets mad when I pick on Disney. But they're both fantasy, and they don't add anything. They just entertain. So as believers, we have to understand the weight those things may or may not have in our life and measure and balance that. What do we serve, and what do we spend our time on? For they are nothing. The problem of darkness is that it's not a thing. It's just the absence of light. Yet it becomes something when you sit in it long enough. You can even get used to it. So verse 22, for if the, the Lord will not forsake his people. If God makes a promise and takes on children, his children, he's not going to forsake those people. He's going to love them. And part of loving kids is sometimes disciplining those kids. All right, you think you can make it on your own and you're 20-some years old, it's time for you to live on your own. That can be a very, you know, Grant's a good and godly young man and we're happy to have him in our home. But if he wasn't, that's some loving parents say, you need to go out and try things on your own for a while. And you need to get those hard knocks so that you can come back into the kingdom. So there's just this idea that when God takes on Israel, even though they're in trouble, don't run from your parents. They're the shelter you run back to. And God's the same way with his people. They're going to stray a little bit, but they can always come back to him. And they do. And he is always there when you need to. He is a good father for this nation. Running from your parents or running from your father in heaven just makes things worse. Now you're really isolating the source of help that you have. So God loves you. He won't forsake you. Samuel gives two reasons. God doesn't forsake you for reason number one. God doesn't want to sully his own reputation. If he's a good and loving father and Israel comes back to him, it would be awfully cruel for him to not take them back. So there's something about God's reputation in Israel that go hand in hand through all of human history. And number two, and I like this one, it actually pleases him. Like God's actually joyfully, when a father in heaven takes his children back, that's a happy day. That's not a day of like, let's punish you more and get mad at you. 
that's a, oh good, my kids are finally figuring out how to do this. Um, so it actually, there is actually a God of love that is pleased when there's a repentant heart and his children come back. I think it's funny, one of our brothers who's no longer with us, when he first came to Bible study a couple years ago, remember Mike, mm-hmm. right? And he was just like, oh, I've just never heard the idea that God wants to spend time with us. That part of our, and I was just so blessed by that because here's this guy who's been around 60 years and I've just never heard that idea. God actually wants to be with us. He's not here to just constantly be berating us with how we sinned and how we failed and how we did things. He actually just wants to spend time with us when we go to him in prayer, that's a joy for God. Samuel's communicating that same idea. God actually wants the fellowship. And he wants mercy, not sacrifice. He actually wants to forgive if we come back to him. It says, you have done, yet do not do. The enemy loves it when we live in the past. That's called shame, or we dread the future, which is called fear. Both of those things are nothing. They don't add up to anything. So Samuel's pointing that out. Don't Don't worry about what you have done yet. Don't do this as you go into the future. Like, stay on the path that you're supposed to be on. So we have a chance. Verse 23. Moreover. In the Hebrew, that means I'm going to add another point. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Wow, what a great passage. But if you still do wickedly, you should be swept away, both you and your king. Good news, Samuel's stepping down from civic leadership, but he's not going to go away. He's going to still serve as a minister or as a priest. What an awesome thing. So for a leader to leave an organization and say, I'm still here if you guys need me for anything, I think that's really graceful. So Samuel's not even asking for a paycheck or a retirement fund or anything like that. He's just going to keep serving in a spiritual way as they move forward. And Israel will have a king and a prophet, and those two people will give both civic leadership and spiritual leadership, respectively, moving forward. So the other piece is it says that I should sin against the Lord, verse 23. For a leader to not pray for people that God's put in their fold, Samuel sees that as a sin. The opposite then is true. It is holy for him to pray for the people around him. So let me ask a convicting question. And don't raise your hand. I'm not trying to like point fingers. How many of you think to yourself, not asking for hands, have prayed for the people in this room as you've gone through the week? Like if you're in a fellowship or a body of people, do you pray for the people that are here? Like, and that's an interesting question because Samuel sees that as a sin for him to cease praying for the people that, he's in, that are in his nation and in his family. So praying for our nation, praying for our city, praying for the people we know in our fellowship is an obligation under Samuel's thinking, at least, um, which is biblical. He's put here as a good person. Um, that To cease praying is, is not acceptable for believers. We should be in constant prayer. Um, Gusick says, if it's a sin to stop praying, how much worse would it be to never even start praying in the first place? Right? So Samuel's idea of, like, I'm going to keep going uh, implies that he's been doing this his whole life. It's part of what he's done to serve. I think some people feel bad because they don't do this, this, or this within the body of Christ. If you're worried about how much you're doing in the body of Christ, at least be praying for the people in the body. Like, there is a base level thing that every human being can do in every church in every city around this country, which is to be in prayer for the people that 
that you're in church with and that you live with. Um, he says, I'll continue to pray. And then the second clause in verse 23 is, I will teach. So he's going to relinquish civic leadership, but he's going to still keep teaching Bible studies. Like he might be retired, but he's going to teach Bible studies. I resonate with that, right? I might not be doing what I've been doing for a long time, but I'm going to keep teaching. Um, and he's going to teach them the way, and he just talked about not turning from the way. Uh, there is one way to God. That's not an Old Testament, New Testament thing. It's an entire Bible thing. There's one path to God. It's either God's way or it's our selfish way, um, and, and there is a choice between those. So Sam, Samuel teaches the way. Saul's going to reject it, but David accepts it. This is the difference between the first two kings. Uh, Psalm 119, I've chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. That's David. Uh, John 4.16, if you go to the New Testament, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's really straightforward. So straightforward that we're accountable for it. <laughs> Verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. You just gave a history lesson. We're supposed to think about what God's done. So when we study the Old Testament, that's an act of remembrance. Look at what God's done in history and be absorbed in the God that we serve, that he's been serving and guiding humanity for thousands of years before we ever arrived. And he conceived us all along the way to be right here in this room right now with each other. This is all part of God. God knew all this would happen. And I'm not being a Calvinist there. I'm like a step back from Calvinists. Just because God knows everything doesn't mean we don't have free will. Like that's a silly idea. Um, now I'm going to have a bunch of Calvinists calling me this week going, come on, Dickers. No, like you have free will, that's true, and God knows what's going to happen. And both of those things are true, and that's how the Bible presents it. If being a Calvinist gets you closer to Jesus, good for you. Let's just roll with that if it gets you closer to Jesus. If you want to be an Arminianist or an open theist and that gets you closer to Jesus, we can start from there and we'll bring you back to a more balanced position. Verse 25, we'll wrap up the chapter. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So this is, he's saying this while the thunder rolls in. You have to imagine this moment. Samuel's speaking and all of a sudden, like he's getting a soundtrack behind what he's saying. The rain starts sweeping in with the, and then he says, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away. Like that would get me. Like there's a moment that's happening there. Um, so this is a reminder. This is during the harvest. Uh, and they're getting this very firm prediction and warning. Uh, they are going to get swept away. Uh, Babylon's going to come, and Assyria is going to take the northern kingdom. Babylon will take the southern kingdom. Israel will be swept away. They'll serve 70 years in Babylon. Uh, and then after that, they're going to come back and reestablish the temple, but it'll be under uh, Babylonian rule. And then it's under Persian rule. And then the Greeks will come, and Alexander the Great will say, hey, look, a library. And then the Romans will show up, and they'll say, look, roads, and they'll build roads. So all this is going to happen, but the nation of Israel will be swept away as a civic leadership organization. They'll become the people of God, but they won't have their own civic leadership. The kingship is going to get swept away right up until Jesus shows up, and then he reclaims the kingdom of God without overthrowing the Romans, which means the earthly government is nigh to irrelevant for God. The people of God serving God, as Samuel says, with all their hearts, is what's relevant here. So this is a final warning of what's actually going to happen to the, the country. 
at least until God himself shows up, Jesus. Um, and then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're good? Good to keep going? All right. <laughs> then Saul screws up. Like, that's this chapter. Then it goes wrong, like, instantly. So verse chapter 13, Saul reigned one year. Good going, Saul. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, house of God. 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent away, every man went to his tent. Every man to his tent is a way of saying, we've seen this a few times now, it's just a way of saying they all went home. And most of them are still living in tents. Uh, it's still a very agrarian society. Um, Saul starts to build an army. This is what Samuel predicted would happen. If you want a king, they're going to want an army. So Samuel, Saul starts to do this. This is the first mention of a brand new character called Jonathan, Samuel's son. I think part of why God picked Saul was so Jonathan would be there for David. Like we're going to see it with Jonathan, we always have a contrast of an amazing faithful man that really serves his father and serves David, and he gives of himself to serve these other people. Jonathan's a really cool character. So this is the first mention, and right off the bat with Jonathan, we see that he's getting experience as a leader of men uh, in a military sense, as Saul instantly puts him in charge of a large portion of his army. So we know that about Jonathan. Um, just because they now have picked a king, like all the Jewish people of Israel's picked a king, yay. None of the surrounding nations recognize this king. So there's, it's just a matter of time before the Philistines and the other groups of people are like, yeah, let's see how powerful this king really is. Because the Philistines still see themselves as over Israel. Uh, verse 3, And Jonathan, he attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. It's important to know that, that Geba is in the nation of Israel. So what, it, this isn't, uh, you could say that attacking this garrison is, still establishing the land, which was the mission of Joshua hundreds of years before this. They still haven't driven people out of the land. Um, so Jonathan picks a fight. So that's the second thing that we know about Jonathan. He's not afraid to go to battle and claim some territory. So he attacks a garrison, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now Israel heard it. Uh, heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. We start moving into this imagery and again, the whole Old Testament is here for our instruction. Jonathan attacking, he's doing this despite amazing odds against the Israelites. So we see that Jonathan has this trust not only in himself, but in the Lord to push the pagans out of the land. He has a heart that recognizes it. And we're going to see from Jonathan, he just wants to clear the land and make this a holy nation. So it's what God commanded them to do. They haven't fulfilled this mission yet. So no wonder he and David become buddies. Like we see this character in Jonathan before he meets David. Geba is right now an archaeological site. They're digging it up right now. And they have in fact shown that during this era of history, there was destruction here and that it was a rebuilt garrison or city. So everything with that archaeological site fits what we're reading right now. Um, so here's, it says that Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked, yet in verse 3 it was Jonathan that attacked. 
This is not good. It seems Saul is okay with sending out trumpeters that give misinformation to the people. Do you see that? And Saul's okay to take credit for something he didn't do. So that's not in Saul's favor. It shows a certain level of insecurity already with Saul. Um, Israel's been subjugated to the Philistines. And if they just submit to the Philistines, everything's good. It's when they stand up for themselves that conflict happens. This is a tough thing because as believers, we want to be at peace with our government. And, and we want to always be on right terms with the, even the, the world around us. So we're beyond reproach. We're good and decent. Um, it, it, so for us to stand up to oppressors or for Jonathan to do that, that's when the conflict really happens. So he stands up to the Philistines. If you've ever watched Braveheart, the whole rebe rebellion in Scotland started when they attacked the garrison, just a small little outpost, and that can start an entire war. So that's what's happening. Um, they don't just become like rebellious to the Philistines. In verse 4, they become an abomination to the Philistines. The word there in the Hebrew means to stink real bad. Like they become a stink to the Philistines because they're not just little rebels. They're little rebels that serve a God, and that bothers them. It's so much easier to bully people when they just lay down and take it. And we've seen with the Philistines constant bullying and theft from the Israelites. It's so much easier to steal from people when they let you steal. But the Israelites finally say, we're done giving you our lunch money, or literally their lunch. So it's the same principle today. The world's happy with Christians when we never take a stand, when we never find lines that we won't cross. We're just compromise on everything. But when you do take a stand, that's when problems start to happen. So as believers, we just try to avoid situations where we have to take a stand. Um, and at some point, God doesn't always let you avoid those situations. Verse 5, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. Now, remember, Israel has 3,000. And 6,000 horsemen. They have twice as many horsemen as Israel has foot soldiers. Like, this is a slaughter just in... And the people, their foot soldiers as the sand which is on the seashore in the multitude. A biblical way of saying, you can't even count the foot soldiers. Go ahead and try. They keep moving. It's hard to count them. So it's a way to say they're completely outnumbered by the Philistines. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the, beast of, the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men on Israel saw that they were in danger, for some of them were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits. That's a long list. And some of the Hebrews crossed over for the, over the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Remember, crossing the Jordan is leaving God's country. They actually just abandoned the kingdom altogether. So these are people most of Israel doesn't trust in God at all. And when the odds are against them, they just run and they hide. And again, this, this doesn't change. When things get tough, most believers will run and hide. They, they're not ready to stand up or trust in the Lord. So the people didn't trust in the Lord. They don't trust in their new king either. Having a human king didn't change a darn thing because it's their hearts that are the problem. It's not the government that's the problem. And it's the mistake we make when we think politics will fix the spiritual condition of a nation. It doesn't work that way. It's not about the government. It's about the hearts of the individuals in the land which need to turn. So their king being a human means they're trusting in humans. The Philistines, being human, mean they're scared of humans. It's both the fear of the difference between serving God or serving man. And either being confident in a man that you like 
or fearful of a man or woman that you don't like, both of those are a form of serving humanity and putting your faith in humans versus God. So they still got a problem. As for Saul, we're still in verse 7. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. The people that he's got are a bunch of scaredy cats. And that, but at least they're still there. Like, we got to give him credit for not running, right? Verse 8, then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. Well, that's good. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. That's a really curious line. You're either with God or you're scattered, Matthew 12. Right? And we see that same image here. You can tell in the mornings I'm doing Matthew because there's just so many. In Matthew, like they're establishing the kingdom of God, and here we're establishing the kingdom of Israel, and there's tons of overlaps between those chapters and these chapters. Saul's super anxious. The people are anxious. They're told to wait, and we should read it as good that they're waiting on Samuel, like at least to this point. And the people were scattered from him. He's starting to lose even people from the 3,000. Like he's, and this is where, as a king, you're getting really scared. I'm sitting here waiting for Samuel, and we want to do the big sacrifice so we can go to war. And as we, every day that we wait, I'm just losing more and more soldiers. Like This is getting more and more hopeless. So in response to hopelessness, Saul's going to turn himself into a priest. And this is where the entire kingship goes bad. Verse 9, so Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. And now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. Great, like if I would have just waited another hour. And isn't that like when we have failings, isn't it just like that sometimes? If I would have just held out a little longer, my salvation was nigh. So Samuel shows up and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. So he disobeys Samuel he disobeys the law, and then he disregards the sacredness of the priesthood, and then he goes out to meet Samuel? That seems like an odd behavior. But if you think about the heart of Saul, he's taking credit for Jonathan's work. He's trembling at the Philistines and worried about what they think. What you're developing there is the character of a, a king who fears what people think about him. And then he behaves based on what humans think of him, based on what God has commanded. And that's a dangerous place to be in a spiritual sense. So he's doing religion in his own convenient way. And my goodness, this was the story of Judges, right? Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Nobody following the word of God. So he's just going to do his own religion. And it looks something like what God's commanded. There's a burnt offering. There's a peace offering. There's a barbecue to be had. So maybe it was a good barbecue, but the Lord's not in it because it's not being done the Lord's way. So you can have the image or the form of God's Judaism or Christianity without the spirit of God, and it's still empty and vain, just like pagan worship. They're not worshiping the Baals. Saul's giving an offering to Yahweh, but he's not doing it the way Yahweh said to do it. So this is a sin, and then he comes out that he might greet him. The word there is translated... In another 302 uses of the word greet, it's actually translated bless. So that changes, for me, that changes that sentence entirely. Saul went out to meet him that he might bless him. Look at what Saul's doing there. He's not only made himself a priest, now he's going to bless Samuel. And he's shifting the authority structure that God's put in place by taking that upon himself. If I can do burnt offerings and peace offerings, well, I can start blessing people just like Samuel does. And he assumes this role of religious leadership without the 
approval of God or the priesthood that already exists. So this is a dangerous place to be. So wow, that's pretty bold of Saul. So he's worried about what people think, and then he's all proud of what he's doing, and he's actually going to go out and bless Samuel. So this is kind of almost like impudent, childlike behavior, simple behavior of a, a brain that hasn't really thought through it. Like he gets so excited about what he's doing, he jumps out to do it with Samuel too. And you get this image of Saul not being very bright when he's doing this or being entirely arrogant and led by humans. Verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? So if you're going to have a peace offering, remember there's a barbecue. You can smell it from miles around. Samuel walks up knowing exactly what's happened up on that hill because he can smell it. He can see it. You know, people are walking back with, you know, offerings that they're eating. And he's like, what are you doing? Started the feast without me. So again, we see from Saul some real immaturity coming up here. Instead of accounting for what he did, he's just going to make a bunch of excuses. So if you're in a workplace situation where people are making excuses, the word's going to speak to you tonight. Or if you're someone that makes excuses when you've done something wrong. This is not a good way to behave. Like, let's skip the excuses. But here's Saul. This is what he does. He's got, he lines the excuses up, which shows premeditation. Like he's got all his reasons for what he did ready to go because he knows what he did was wrong. So here they are. Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, again, that shows insecurity, a need to impress. Remember, Gideon fought with 300 people, so God's already shown you don't need numbers. So I saw the people were running from me and that you did not come to me and, and then the day, within the days appointed. So now he's passing the blame onto Samuel. He's redirecting the guilt, right? Jericho shows that God can move very slowly to take a city. Patience is part of what God's already called for from his people. And then he keeps going. And that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. And then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. So that's a false dichotomy. He's saying it's either this way or that way, and that dichotomy doesn't exist. It's not just this way or that way. So the context is true. Yes, the Philistines are gathering, but it's untrue to say that, um, that his only option was to make supplication before Samuel got there. That's not truth. So again, part of his excuse-making is to take a partial truth and twist it. He could have prayed. I'll give you just a few other options that he had. It's not just either this or that. So the Philistines are gathering. One of the things the king could have done is he could have led them in prayer. He could have guided them in reading the word of God. He should have a copy because the law says every king has to write out their own copy of the Bible. And if he's been king for a year now, he's had plenty of time to write out his copy. Remember, their Bibles were smaller than ours. So he should have his own personal copy on his being. He could have just taken that Bible out of his Bible holster and he could have started reading the word of God to the people. So he had that option. Here's another one. He could have built defenses, like, and he could have guarded against the Philistines' attack by building trenches, putting little spikes up, having that montage in the movie where the village people make all their defenses around the village, getting ready to make his last stand. He could have been worshiping because we saw him worship with the priests before. Remember when he started his kingship? He still knows those old songs. He could have just started praising the Lord. Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Think of the peace that would have given his army. They've been like, yeah, we're going to sing songs while we get attacked. Let's see what, what God does then. So his true supplication was to wait for Samuel. 
And sometimes in the kingdom, the true supplication we give is patience. If God's telling us to wait, we just wait. And we find contentment with the people of God. I'm right where God's put me. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I'm going to find a way to be happy in that. Even if the enemies are piling up outside the door. Waiting upon the Lord and leaning not on our own understanding is the beginning of a mature walk with Christ, with God. Waiting doesn't make us weaker. It does the exact opposite in our spiritual life. Waiting upon the Lord. And I honestly, this is one of those things where we are, get anxious about whatever the next stage in life is. We get anxious about it. For me, that temptation is how in the world am I going to retire, right? And depending on where you're at in life, you take whatever stage it is, and we get anxious about getting to the next stage. I need to get married. We need to have kids. Our kids need to not be weirdos. Our kids need to not be rebels. We need to pay for college. Like, it's always the next thing. Life always has the next thing to be anxious and worried about. The Philistines are out there. Well, sing a song. Like, be the hobbit that God made you to be. Like, relax and chill. Isaiah 40, verse 31 but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Waiting on the Lord is the source of energy. It's not the exasperation of it. Therefore, Saul says, therefore I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. Who did you feel compelled by, Saul? Is that God speaking to you or did you say that to yourself? The helplessness, the feeling, and the presumption are three sins that Saul commits here that are just inexcusable for a king. These are all signs of weakness. Helplessness, emotivism, and presumption. I can't do anything. I'm helpless. I felt this way, therefore I did it. That's never an excuse before God because he asks you to reason with him as Samuel did early in the last chapter. <clears throat> to feel like sinning is never a reason to sin. In fact, that's what we call temptation, is that we feel like sinning. Godliness is to, uh, to take those feelings and put them on the throne before God and let him change how we feel and let God's reason and word come into our life. Temptation is not sin. Sin is sin. But the temptation is things that we all have to deal with and we experience no temptation that's not common to man. We're not alone. That's why God tells us to gather. It's because we can share our struggles with each other and go through life together. We're not doomed. We're not helpless. And we're not given situations that would ever cause us to abandon our God. Because God is our salvation. He is our fortress. He is the, the place that we go to get through those things. But I just feel like God was telling me to do this. That's Saul's argument. I just felt like God was telling me this. How many believers get into hot water because they just feel like doing something? Stop it. <laughs> Don't do that. Go to the word. Go to brothers and sisters in the church. Go to the Lord directly through prayer and supplication and wait upon the Lord for an answer. And if you absolutely can't find an answer, there's always the urum and the thumum. And we can roll the dice and we can make a decision and give it over to God. Okay? Last resort, by the way. Saying I just felt God was telling me to do this, that's horrible theology and we don't see it anywhere in the Bible. And it's actually with this example with Saul, it's actually spoken against. Saul's not in the right here when he does this. 
So his argument of, I just felt compelled, that's not a rationale. God doesn't work that way with people. But Satan would love for masses of Christians to believe that, that we're supposed to live our lives in chaos and guesswork. Saul doesn't do it in ignorance. The fact that he has four excuses says he knew darn well he shouldn't do this, right? I just felt like shacking up with that person would be great before we were married. No, it's against the rules. Don't do it. It's not going to be helpful to you. It's bad theology. Saul could have just said, he could have said this. When, when Samuel comes up and says, what are you do, have you done? Like that's what God did with Adam and Eve, right? Saul could have just said, I screwed up, didn't I, Samuel? Shoot, I'm so sorry. That was wrong of me. I repent. What can I do to make this right? That's exactly what David does when Nathan convicts him of sin. With David, we see the right way to handle it. With Saul, we see excuses like a child. Saul could have said, it will never happen again. When we were raising Grant and Katie, this is, I'm sure my kids remember this. It's like, here's what I want to hear from you. <laughs> I want to hear, Dad, it'll never happen again. And, that, and that's the right way to respond when you, like, I'm sorry, it won't happen again, or I'll do everything in my power to never let that happen again. That's what, I, that's what any boss wants to hear when you're being disciplined at work. I'm so sorry, I was wrong, it'll never happen again. Because they don't want to go hire a new employee, right? They just want to hear that it's going to get fixed and that it won't go that way. So Saul screws it up in every possible way, even for basic workplace accountability. And verse 13, and Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly. And I don't know if Samuel's referring to like the bad offering or the excuses. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, so the offering. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. That's the first indication we hear about David. And that's the defining part of David when he's identified. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over your people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. You broke the rules, Saul, right? It's not that God doesn't love you, but you screwed up and you're not repenting of it. So God's not going to let you stay in charge. The word foolishly is sakal. Uh, it's, it's a sin to do this. The same word gets used in number 12 with Aaron. It says, I beseech thee to not lay up the sin upon us wherein we have done sakal foolishly, wherein we've sinned. Remember, Aaron set up false idols. So we get a, a reflection there when we see that. Typically, sakal or to do foolishly is not to just act like a silly person. To do foolishly in the Old Testament and New Testament has everything to do with a spiritual or moral failure. To be a fool is to think incorrectly about the spiritual truths around you. That's foolish. So we think of foolish as just like telling bad dad jokes. But that's not what foolishness is here. It's you've made a moral failing, Saul. And the moral failing is he doesn't keep God's command. And that's not wise and it's foolish. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111.10. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments, his praise endures forever. If we want to be wise, solid people, we do what God has told us to do. And that's the essence of what Samuel's getting into it with Saul here. It's like, and I don't think what he's saying is hateful. I think he's just saying, you've done foolishly. Like, he's just telling him the truth. And you imagine that Samuel, being a man of grace and love his entire life, is still a man of grace and love when he's disciplining Saul right now. 
And Saul's a younger man. He's an older man talking to a younger man saying, what you've done here is really foolish. By the way, Saul still has a chance to repent. As Samuel's laying this out, at any point, Saul could be repenting. Your kingdom over Israel forever. So if there's going to be a king that God's established, there is a throne over Israel now, that's established. But the family that's on that throne doesn't have to be Saul. And that's what God's shifting here. So God's going to keep his promise and give them a king. In fact, he's promised a kingdom forever. So there's going to be a throne that needs a forever king on it. And the family that, that the line of that family is not going to be Saul. It's going to now be David. And David's not related to Saul. So that's kind of the thing here. The honor for Saul would have been that Jesus would have come in the line of Saul. But we don't say that. We say Jesus came in the line of David. So this is where that shift happens, and this is why it happens. But now your kingdom shall not continue. That's an important concept. Saul's going to reign for another 20 years. So God doesn't move overnight. But Saul's going to see that his dynasty won't go through his sons um, because Samuel's essentially saying your kids aren't going to rule anymore. Like it won't be your line. So that's sad because Jonathan has already shown himself to be a worthy guy. Like, God didn't just pick Saul. He picked Saul and Jonathan, who's already alive. So he knows what's going to happen. And in some ways, I think God knew that Jonathan would have been a viable next-generation king for Israel. He's a good man. He's a courageous man. He's a selfless man. Saul has raised him right. But this is going to take Jonathan out of the equation. You might think Jonathan turns to bitterness when that starts to happen. It doesn't happen at all. Jonathan's just a godly guy. I don't need to be the one on the throne. I'm happy to serve the one God wants to put on the throne. That says so much about Jonathan. Like, I want to meet this guy in heaven. He doesn't need the limelight. Though he's willing to fight, he's willing to battle. So the next part reads, odd in the English. There's, remember in the, in the Hebrew, there's, there's English tenses that get mixed up. So verse 14, it says, The Lord has sought for himself. That's not in the past tense in the Hebrew. It's in the present tense and in the future tense. So what Samuel's proclaiming here is a really interesting sentence. In the English, it just reads funny. And whenever you see that in the Old Testament, go look up the Hebrew. It's super easy. Click, click on Blue Letter Bible. And look at the Hebrew really carefully. Um, it says, the Lord has sought for himself. The word has and the word for are not in the Hebrew. So Saul was to be that guy, past tense. David is now going to be that guy, present tense. And also, the Lord, is, the Lord sought himself heart is the Hebrew. It also is true in the future tense in terms of Jesus. So I'll read that again. In the Hebrew, word for word, it should read, Lord sought him self heart. That's what it says in the Hebrew. So it's true for Saul, past tense. It's true for David, coming up, present tense. And it's also entirely true for Jesus because if you read that and start putting back in the English, you could equally translate as the Lord is seeking himself and his own heart to rule over the people. That's the result of Saul's sin is the Lord's just going to put himself on the throne, which is exactly what he does with Jesus Christ. So this weird little English sentence when you, when you look at that careful in the Hebrew, you're like, this is amazing. Samuel's speaking absolute truth for Jesus Christ here. A man after his own heart is later used to define David. A man with God's own heart would happen to be 
God incarnate as a man to have the same heart. But that's going to be the definition of the king that deserves the throne is someone who owns God's heart, Jesus. So Saul shows his heart, which is one to make excuses, lie about who did that attack on the garrison, and that's earthly excuses, and it's not the kind of heart God's going to put on that throne. David sins, and he repents, tells the truth, and serves other people, and does it his whole life. So the sin isn't the problem. It's the heart and our willingness to turn to God that's the problem. None of that's changed in what we're offered in the salvation of Jesus. It's not the sin that's, that gets in the way. It's our heart that gets in the way. If you want forgiveness, God gives forgiveness. Really easy. God forgives people that come to him in humility. Those who harden the, their hearts, he wipes them away. And he will cast them out of his presence. That's the equation. God can mold a flexible heart, but when you put that same heart in front of God, it breaks. Like a brick in the heat doesn't do well, but ice cream in the heat melts. So it's the material that matters, right? It's not the, the sun shining that's going to change. It's the heart that comes in front of it. It says the Lord has commanded him. Both were commanded, both Saul and David. Only one of them kept the law and the other one broke it. It says the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. Uh, commanded is the word sava, but commander is the word nagid, two different root words. So the Lord has commanded him to be commander. Different words, different root words. I don't know why. Your translation might have it different, but mine has commander for both of those words. But they're not the same word. Um, him to be is a Hebrew filler. It's true for David, but it's, without it, it's true for Jesus. So the Lord has commanded commander over his people, true for Jesus. The Lord is the commander of his own people. Um, but when you look at it with, with Saul, it's equally a good translation to say the Lord has commanded him to be leader over his people. So Jehovah commands. He is the captain. He's the one that commands his people. King or no king, God's still the God of Israel. And you see that Saul doesn't, isn't going to mess that up. Verse 15, Then Samuel arose, and he went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So he's lost a lot of soldiers. He still has twice as many as Gideon. Like, honestly, he should be like, I don't care about numbers. I got people that with hearts that are still here. So with no repentance that's recorded, Saul never repents, Samuel takes off and he leaves. He gave him the truth. He rejected the truth. Samuel takes off. <clears throat> There's no argument. There's no debate that's recorded. He's told Saul his duty, and Saul doesn't really respond. So Samuel shakes the dust off his feet and walks away. Okay, good luck, Saul. You're on your own. Jesus tells the disciples, whoever doesn't receive you or hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Samuel models that for us right here. He told him the truth. He rejected the truth. He leaves. Samuel then is not responsible for Saul's choices from this point forward. So don't accuse the Old Testament of being evil from this point forward because God and God's representative have walked away from Israel right now. They're on their own. So when we get to chapter 15 and they start kill killing women and babies, like a lot of people say, oh, that, the God of the Old Testament is this evil, horrible God. Yeah, God of the Old Testament is working with a nation that's against his will right now. So what he's doing is trying to make space for the people of God and these choices get worse and worse the further down this path that they get. But Samuel walks away, 
you got 600 men. That's, uh, you know, in chapter 13, verse 2, he had 3,000 men, and then they scattered in verse 8, and now there's 600 left. So he's lost a lot of men. Verse 16, Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah and Benjamin, but the Philistine encamped at Michmash. Then the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road for Ophrah to the land of Shual. The other company turned on the road of, to Beth Horon, and the other company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboeim towards the wilderness. I'm not going to get into each of those three paths. Essentially, they went in three different directions. Their goal at this point is to bring terror to all of Israel. So they're going out like a pitchfork into three different paths. And the raiders, uh, the word raider there implies they're doing violence to the people. They're pillaging, they're little land pirates, and they're going to go out and, and loot and destroy and just bring destruction to the Israelites. So remember that when they have to fight back against the Philistines and they have to start retaking territory. The evil that's done to Israel here has to be stopped, and that's going to require some sort of resistance. So the three companies go out. They're going with impunity. Essentially, the Israelites don't have any power in this situation to stop them or do anything about it. Verse 19. Now there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all of the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So we know from Judges that the people of Israel don't exactly have weapons during this era of history. Remember Samson used the jawbone of an, an ox? Donkey? I just didn't want to say naughty words. So he uses a jawbone because they don't have blacksmiths. They just don't have weapons. So one of the ways that oppressors like the Philistines throughout history, one of the ways oppressors dominate people is they take away weapons. It's been true throughout all of human history. When weapons get taken away from a people, you're usually within 10 years of mass killing. And this has happened all over the world. Venezuela, Cambodia, China, Stalinist Russia. Disarming people causes genocidal behavior. And this is true with the Philistines. There's no weapons to defend themselves, and you, it leads to slaughter. During all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. So they did have metal, and they had farm implements, but they had to go to the Philistines to get them fixed. Now, if I'm a blacksmith and I'm smart, I don't sharpen that plowshare very well. I give them, I sharpen it, but it's still kind of dull, so they have to come back next week and get it sharpened again. The duller I keep the weapons, the more business I get. So this relationship with the Philistines is probably one that they profited by enormously um, because they wouldn't let Israelites do it themselves. One of the ways to profit from a people is to take away the ability of those people to produce for themselves. If they can't do things on their own, they're desperate to get that, and they'll pay whatever they have to to do it. And remember, all these tools are the tools of um, food making and construction. The axe for wood, the sickle for crops, the plowshare for cutting the land, and the mattox. Like, those are all tools to, do, to produce for yourself what you need in life. So little tidbits about the ancient world. We see the, that in these verses. Little tidbits of truth. Um, can be really threatening to these kinds of governments. So when Saul stands up and starts gathering an army, Philistines got to shut that down quick.
because they like their profit that they get off the Israelites and they like to be able to steal from them. So, and in the Bible, we get to see the secrets of oppressive governments. Like it really is one of the benefits of reading the Bible. One, disarm them. Two, dominate them. Three, you can pillage and take whatever you want from them. And then four, if you really have to, you can just get rid of them and start killing them. And we see the Philistines do this, which we should not be surprised when we look at world history and we see that happen over and over and over again. You can slap whatever name you want on it. When oppressive governments do these things, they tend to kill people in the end. But they don't kill them unless the people stand up and, and stick up for themselves. Like they're happy to pillage forever. It's when those people start starving to death and the food becomes short that people stand up and start to resist that. So that's the story of human history if you want to look at about 14,000 years of recorded history. That's just what happens. Verse 21. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks and the forks and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. Remember a goad was a big stick that you would use to move oxen around. Also, the dull work that they would have there, um, they would charge them for it. So the point is that they're making money off it. Um, and really, you can't fight with these farm tools. They're just not sharp enough. So it came about, verse 22, on the day of the battle, that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan and his son. One year of having a quote-unquote king of Israel there's only two people that have weapons. Like, this is, this is like a farmer revolt, much more than like the battle of nations, right? And sometimes we see like the Philistines and we think of them as kind of equal. They're not equal at all. This is a completely mismatch. This is George Washington versus the British Army. This is completely mismatched. And I think that's what these verses are trying to say. So you got only two people with weapons. Jonathan's one of them. But they were found with the lack of weapons, being bad or good. And the word but there is that, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. They have something, right? And this is a lot like Gideon, like you have 300 men. You have something. And if, if God, we have fish and loaves, we can feed thousands of people. God can do so much with so little. Two weapons, okay, you got something. So... You don't have weapons as an army, but you got these two guys. God takes warriors with heart, 600 men who stick with Saul, and he can do things with those people. The heart is the weapon that God's people have. It's never about earthly resources. It's never about our means. It's always about our heart and our spirit, and if we believe God has called us to stand up. And here they're standing up to the Philistines. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities, against the rulers of darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6.12. Same thing's true in the Old Testament. Their battle is not against the Philistines. It's against the spirits that drive these people. So what good are swords against the Philistine army with thousands of horsemen and chariots? Doesn't need that. God doesn't need it. What hope does man have against such wrath and such evil? And when you just look at the chaos, there's no hope. When you look up, there's hope. Same thing with the Moses and the serpent. When you look at the ground, all you see are the snakes. But when you turn your eyes upon the cross and the snake that's pierced on that cross, there's hope when you look up. And as people of God, we live in the joy of knowing God's on his throne no matter what happens. So 
huge Philistine army, two people with swords. This is a comical situation if you look at it from the world's perspective. But from God's perspective, he's about to do a thing. Verse 23, and the garrison of the, Phil the, garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Dun, dun, dun. The battle is set. It's staged. Something's about to happen. But we'll get to it next week. Amen? Oh, by the way, just my Lord of the Rings reference for the night. The garrison of the Philistines went out at the pass of Mishmash. I think of when Sauron's tower emptied out to come after Minas Tirith. Like the enemy has poured out against them. There's a danger when you commit your resources at the front line. It means nothing's back defending the back line. And the enemy often does this. In overconfidence, they attack God's people with everything, and God has so many more resources than that. So they're, they're in a situation where they maybe have overcommitted, um, and this is going to set them up for a bad situation coming up. So God's people are hiding in rocks and pits. They've all housed themselves in Helm's Deep, and the, the armies of Saruman have come out against Helm's Deep, and they're filling the canyon and the valley, and God's people look like they're about to be ended. But they're not ended. There's still hope. And we'll get to that next week too. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, thank you for great narratives like the Lord of the Rings. Uh, thank you for great narratives like Samuel and the story of Saul. Lord, thank you that your truth is laced in every word of your book. Man, we just, we need you, Lord, and we love to know your character with how you work with your people. We love to know that we have a Father in heaven that will discipline us in love and you will bless us in love. And Lord, we just want to come to you, and if there's any wicked way in us, clean it out, and we repent of it, and we give it over to you. Lord, we don't have time for wickedness in our life. The days are short, and you're returning soon. And Lord, we just want to be pure before you so that we can share your love and grace with other people. And Lord, we don't care if thousands are hiding in holes and hiding away and trying to avoid the spiritual battles that we have. Lord, we want to be in them and we want to do it with boldness because we know you're our Lord and Savior. And with you, we don't need weapons of this world. What we need is love and grace and truth. Help our words to be carefully chosen with every interaction this week. That each person we come in contact with, Lord, we're listening to how you want us to respond and talk to those people. Lord, help us to share in love like Samuel did. Uh, that when we see things that need to be addressed, we, we address them because not because we're scared of what people think or we're worried about getting favor like Saul, but sometimes in love we need to tell people things. And Lord, help us to, if, if, there, if we can avoid conflict with the Philistines, Lord, help us to be people of peace. We're not interested in that fight. Um, but Lord, when the Philistines come and they oppress and they're bullies, Lord, help us to stand on your truth and your word and to not bend or break from that. Um, that we have areas and lines that we're, we're willing to stand on what you say, um, even if the world falls away around us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this fellowship. And Lord, for, for, for what it's worth, I just pray the blessing on the people in this room and the people that are listening on the podcast. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint our lives, to give us a great hope and that we can keep our eyes on you. Lord, may we go forward this week in strength, in grace and in love to the people around us under your power in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.